Hello, and welcome to the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Today's guest is a gentleman who has probably lived five lives when all of you find out what this gentleman has done. It is my immense, immense honor to welcome Peter Goldmark to the show. Peter, thank you for agreeing to this conversation. I am so thrilled to start talking to you. Um, you're very kind, Michael. I'm glad to be here. And at this special moment in New York's history, when the city is both in trouble and reinventing itself. You know, that already is such an astute observation, especially from somebody like you, who has held such positions of leadership and power within not only New York City, but on a global and international scale. So it is indeed something that New York is, is a resilient city. You know, I'm actually born and raised in New York, and it's an incredibly resilient city. I was here during 9-11, was here now during this pandemic. And it is something that everyone, everyone, no one counts New York out ever. That's true. You know? That's it is true. And, you know, I'm going to start alluding to all of your amazing uh, positions that you've held through your career in this interview. But I want to start by asking you a little bit about your upbringing and your lens. It's always been on a global scale for you to really be able to have done an amazing career in really a lot of different positions and sectors to really been doing that from a global lens always. I wonder where that started from. Did that start from your parents, your father? How did that start? That started, Michael, from my youngest years, and you're very astute to even probe in that area because mm. I'll just tell you a few things about my life as a child, and they were a little bit unusual, but of course, I didn't see that. My father was Hungarian. Mm. Both my mother and father spoke two or three languages. My mother was American. My father brought over from Europe just a year or two before I was born, his parents and then his brothers. So there were these wow. uncles and aunts and grandparents coming wow. from all over, the, all over the world. World War II was a very real moment to me. I was born during World War II, and my earliest memories are of uncles and uh, not my father. I'm going to get to my father, but uncles and other male relatives walking around in uniform. So I had a very real sense, a global sense, and it was more subtle than most. Toward the end of the war, they, my parents sat me down and said, Peter, I was four years old at the time. We want you to know you have another uncle you haven't met, and he's been fighting on the German side of the war. Wow. He was a Hungarian who was a member. I don't know if you remember in World War II, but the Germans sort of gathered up the Hungarian army, Absolutely. tried to make them fight with them on the Russian front, which my Uncle Ferry did not do. Uh, he he, he uh, went on strike and hid and eventually wow. escaped from the. But still, think of what a global sense that was to be told it for uh, that. Now, my father um, was a scientist. And he did a lot of work, as far as I can tell, Michael, before the United States was in the Second World War. Wow. I don't know how they did it. I don't know how the White House arranged it, but they sent him to help the British technologically. And I'm going to make it a, I make it a very short story, but it's interesting. It's an amazing story. If I ask you, what is a black box? 
you will probably tell me the black box is those electronics, you know, the electronics in the cockpit of an airplane. Right. And if I tell you, if I ask you what color is the black box, you will say, if black, I'm, of course, they're bright <laughs> orange. Because when the plane goes down in the ocean, you have to be able to find it in the bottom of the well, ocean. Now that makes complete sense. <laughs> now, why is the black box orange? Why is it called the black box? Because in World War II, the Germans invented radar before the Allies, and the Americans sent my father to Europe, and he invented the machine that jammed radar. And every pilot in the RAF wanted one of his little things, which came in a black box. Come and on. they would follow him around and say, have dinner, drinks. Dr. Goldmark, Dr. Goldmark, I'm flying tomorrow. Have you got an extra black box? And that is the origin of the phrase, which contains totally different electronic material. But two points. The world of pilots is so regimented and organized linguistically that to this day, the box of things they don't understand in the co in the cockpit is called the black box. And oh my. how global all this was for a little four or five-year-old. Oh, my goodness gracious. Do you know that I um, read a, uh, a, a book that actually referenced your father now that you said that because there was also um, also the different waves, weren't there? The sound waves and the airwaves where you actually sort of had the sonar equipment and then you had the air equipment and how the frequencies changed. And then I read all about what you just described. What incredible full circle that it's been on the first question. So just to complete the story with another picture of my young life, my first trip to Europe is when I'm nine or 10 with my father. And I don't know what city we're in because the story I'm about to tell happens in English. I can't remember. But an old lady crosses the street with a heavy accent. She comes up to me, nine years old. And she says, young man, I think you're American. If you are American, when you go back home at the end of this trip, would you thank all the people there for what oh, wow. for us. I don't oh, know about wow. you, Michael, but in my trips overseas lately, nobody's crossed the street to thank <laughs> for being American. <laughs> <laughs> that is an extraordinary story. Isn't it? That's an, and, and it sets it up for everything that you've done in your life on a global scale to really be so impacted at such an early age by your family and what has been part of history with your father it's extraordinary that's right wow that's amazing and it really just explains a lot of what we're going to be talking about and a lot of what you did and just to wrap it all up the lady i married who shares my life with me my wife is french <laughs> i like that <laughs> so i'm going to dig into a lot of different highlights in your uh in your amazing amazing career so at the age of 30 you were appointed the secretary of human services and this was a job that overlooked all of the different prisons and this was right after attica you were mentioning to me in an email earlier i can't even fathom what that would have been like. How did you handle the gravity of that situation? It was an extremely hard job, and it was made more difficult by the fact that at 30, and I looked about 22, I was <laughs> the youngest member of the governor's cabinet. The budget and the scope of this department 
occupied half the Massachusetts government. That's how big it was, because in addition to corrections, it oversees welfare, public health, mental health. Uh, I mean, you go on, go on down the list. Um, and it was a time of upheaval. And in addition to that, I was the only member of the governor's cabinet who was not from Massachusetts. So really? I was known as the kid by some of the legislators from New York. And some of them were after my ass from day one. So it was an <laughs> extremely uh, high-pressure job. And um, I had had some experience in the, in the city of New York leading up to it, uh, which I'd been in. I had the financial experience being assistant director of the budget uh, for several years of New York City. And then I had a little high pressure experience when I was chief of staff to the mayor. Wow. Um, at, uh, again, that was, I guess, at the age of 29, looking about 21. And But I learned something about dealing with the police department. I learned something about when to make a decision, when to wait till you have more information. And I needed it all. Now, I don't know if uh, many people listening to us to right now, Michael, remember the Attica, which was a prison uprising in New York State, which was totally mismanaged. And there were both some state troopers and a lot of inmates lost their lives because mm. the state police went in without any training or preparation. So when I got to Massachusetts and I saw that the prisons were restless and there were prisoners committees wanting to negotiate about their right, I went to see the head of the Massachusetts State Police. I told the governor I was going to do this. And I said, we've got to start some training preparation in case we ever have to use the state police in the Massachusetts prisons in the face of an uprising or some sort of disorder or turmoil. Yes. He reluctantly agreed. We did it. I helped him think through what we had to train. What we trained them to do was in the first instance, us hoping that that would be the only instance to go in without any arms. Right. Because that's the only really safe way to do it. Depends to what degree the inmates are still on. Well, we did have an incident. We did have a riot. And we sent in the Massachusetts, had to send in the Massachusetts State Police. And not a single inmate was seriously injured, let alone Amazing. killed. So it, so it worked. Um, but those are, there's no textbook you go for that, Michael. There is no class or school or graduate school. Uh, you have to do. That is truly the art of negotiation when it is a life or death situation. Yes. When that becomes the stakes, right? And so I'm curious to see what your point of view is now, where we're almost having the same conversation so many years later about police reform and, and things of that nature. What would what do you opine on that now with the background that you so successfully did at such a young age? My feeling is that uh, we have lived too long and have now reached the end of the road when first I don't know how it was viable for so long. We had quite a racist system in terms of uh, the behavior and the on the ground interpersonal contact of our police forces. Um, whether you start at one end from stop and frisk all the way over to the different rules that applied in the case of when an uh, armed force was used and, and so on. And without, I don't want to make this a whole sure, of course. gigantic speech, but it is time now and the country is ready 
with the exception of the tail end of the older generation, certainly the younger generations are ready to turn the page and be rigorously fair. And that requires a fundamental restructuring of what the rule of the game for the police force is. When you use force, when you don't, what you're trained to do, how you're judged, what you will be disciplined for, what you will be backed up and supported for. What's going on now is complicated for the police, Michael. They don't know the rules of the game. They don't know when they're going to be backed up or when they feel they're going to have the rug pulled out from them. Now, what I just ask you to step back a minute. What is remarkable is how little leadership, not how much is being taken this. Where is the bipartisan committee of governors? Yes form themselves to decide to talk this through so that several states do it at once. Where is the lead from the federal government um, to pull together police forces and to help in effect draft, I don't mean like lawyers, but I mean think through a wow. new set of rules that we can begin teaching in the police academies from day one. So we're not, we're in a sort of, we're, we're crossing a river and we've got one foot on one rock and the other foot reaching out to the other rock. And I don't know if we're going to slip or if we're going to make it. Why aren't we coming to you with all of this guidance? It is amazing your your point of view and so eloquently said, you know, it, it, it just builds on the amazing career that you've had. You were also the CEO of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. And I um, am born and raised in New York. Um, actually, my uncle was an engineer for Port Authority. And so I really? remember that as a child. And so it was one of these things that I know for those that are, this is a global podcast. So those that don't understand the massiveness of what would have been this infrastructure. I, it, it, just as you start thinking about the Herculean task that you would have had in doing this, my question to you is, A, how did you do it? But B, how did you really empower what would have been your team? Because obviously, you already sort of shared some very amazing um, uh, viewpoints. So you would have had to have figured out you can't do this on, on yourself by your upon your own. So you have to empower your team leaders. How do you empower a team? It was a curious set of circumstances. And again, I was very young at the time when I went to the Port Authority to run it. Uh, I was 36, wow. looked about 25. And, <laughs> uh, there were a series of scandals going mm. on. And not only was the Port Authority sort of without a clear mission and not sure where it was going, but there was a set of scandals and they were expense account scandals. People, some people, including some senior members of the staff had been cheating on their expense accounts, um, wow. you know, putting in for a meal they never had, getting reimbursed. The director of aviation um, was using the Port Authority helicopter to send his wife shopping to the supermarket. So, oh my God. Sloppy, unfocused wow. place. So I had to decide what to do about that. I'm, I mean, I'm not going to run an organization that is cheating, lying, uh, in effect stealing. And you can't, you can't build on an organization like that. It doesn't, it's not strong enough. Everybody there knows this bullshit is going on. So it's not strong enough to go anywhere. So I did two things. On that front, I said, 
we're going to investigate it ourselves. We're not going to wait for the district attorney or the, uh, the Northeast uh, federal prosecutors to come in. And later on, the uh, Bob Morgenthau, who had been district attorney of New York City, he said, you know, I was ready. I was watching it. And you guys did it yourself. Hats off. That's the way it should be. So I investigated it. I had to fire some people. I had to suspend others. The board was Mishima. It was a board of commissioners, six from New Jersey, six from New York. At the beginning, they were backing the staff. And they said, oh, why are you being so tough with the staff? Why did you fire us? And so on and so on. And I said, hey, we set down the rules. We yeah. said lying on expense accounts going to be, and so on and so on. Two months later, as all this unfolded in the papers, suddenly they wanted it to be tough, me to be tougher on the staff. They said, because, hey, I was at a cocktail party and everybody said, why are you putting up with this in the Port Authority? Why these people ought to be out on that? I said, look, at, when we began this, taking charge, investigating, we were very clear what the rules of the road are. And this is all about the rules of the road. So we're not going to start firing people who only did something we said you get suspended for. We're going to stick to what we're doing. That's the way we build confidence, strength, and forward momentum. The thing we did on the other end, we set up a committee on the future of the Port Authority in the region, and we held hearings, town meetings throughout the Port District, both sides of the river, both states, and we came up with a large and aggressive program for how the Port Authority, with its capital strength and its engineering know-how, which your father was part of, it sounds like, could help stimulate the regrowth and the investment in the infrastructure of the largest metropolitan region in the United States. And that worked to a considerable degree. As a matter of fact, Michael, there's no way you should know that. In two weeks, I guess I'm the only former executive director of the Port Authorities being asked to address their 100th anniversary since their founding. And we're going to talk about infrastructure and what's the role of the Port Authority wow. in the metropolitan region. Wow. And it talks about your legacy, what you brought into that. You know, you talk about structure quite a lot and, and doing the right thing and justice, if you will, in being just as opposed to justice on a judicial sense, mm -hmm. but being just. And you brought that into all of your different phases of your career. I'm noticing an incredible trend here. And then you actually became the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. And so this is now taking it to a global stage where you're now focused on what is the well-being of humanity on a global scale. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Tell me about where philanthropy fits into your life now from that experience. Well, as we said earlier, I've had a very lucky life. I've had wonderful jobs. I've had some of those jobs at the moment in history that was most exciting for a job that was always considered a good job. I was budget director of the state of New York during the big fiscal crisis of the 1970s. That was a bigger challenge than that job, which has existed for 200 years. So at the Rockefeller Foundation, the foundation was also at a bad period. It had, been, had a little bit low morale, didn't have any clear direction. So we set up a where are we going process again, but I also did a lot of recruitment. And one of the recruiting things I did to help 
inject some spark and some initiative was to create a young fellows program. So mm. we got outstanding young fellows from around the world. Not that Rockefeller at that time was the only really internet, uh, big American foundation that spent over half its budget around the world rather than just in the U S. So we had a regular influx into the staff of brilliant 20 and 25 year olds who were learning. So I mean, it's hard to imagine in a distinguished foundations with lots of PhDs. By the way, yeah. Michael, they were very upset at this young kid, the first non-PhD who had ever been head of the Rockefeller Foundation. They thought that was some kind of sacrilege. Anyway, <laughs> but it means whether you were in the lunchroom or in the hallway having a conversation with uh, these young kids were always there talking, asking you questions, trying out new ideas on you. So it was a very deliberate attempt to open up and get young talent. We recruited some good new senior people, and we essentially forged a couple of new problems, uh, programs, sorry. Um, I'll just give you examples of two of them. We started um, the first this international foundation, Rockefeller. Wow. There was no environmental program. Hello. Wow. Say, Could I see the list of programs again? <laughs> no environmental program. So we started the first environmental program. It was a large focus on climate change, but not exclusively on. What year was that, Peter? Uh, I went there in 88. So I would say oh. we built that program in the first two years. Amazing. Um, we And the other thing I did that was really big, that did receive a lot of publicity, this is something many Americans don't know, Michael, a short story I'm about to tell. But we put together a large alliance of foundations to finance the growth of community development corporations. Now, during the years I'm talking about, the 70s and 80s and the early 90s, there were large parts of America's central cities that were bombed out and unlivable. And uh, I don't know if you remember in your family, you're probably not, you're probably a little too old. A whole neighborhood was called Fort Apache in the Bronx. Because I, I, sure, I know of it. Yeah. Well, if you walk through there today, there are homes, flowers, houses, and most bombed out slum areas physically in America's central cities, with the exception of about five or eight cities, of which Detroit was one, unfortunately, and a couple of others. Those were rebuilt. Now, I'm not saying they became paradises. Life is always not easy there, but they were a lot better. And this is something we did in this country that isn't widely celebrated because to do it, we had to break one deeply held belief of the right wing, the conservative Republicans, and one deeply held belief of the liberal wing, the advancing. But we did put together an alliance and we created, at one point, we had 6,000 community development corporations rebuilding their neighborhoods a block at a time, a building at a time, and it worked. Talk about sort of like real estate resurgence, isn't it? And, you know, you start thinking about, you know, you mentioned Detroit and even even today now Detroit is a new city because there was uh, Quicken Loans came in and in Detroit they had bought hundreds of buildings 
and revitalize that. And that was as a corporation. So to do it as a foundation, that's just extraordinary that you did it so early on. It started elsewhere and I had been involved elsewhere. It actually started in the Ford Foundation. What I helped do with Rockefeller is put together an alliance. It was at that time the largest alliance of foundations ever put together uh, in, in the U.S. and bring them all together so that we could take it to scale. I love that. So I, for the sake of the listeners and for the viewers, I'm going to start sort of doing a little checklist here. So you were, the, uh, see, I'm already getting lost. You were the Secretary of Human Services. Uh, you went in and became the CEO of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. You were the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. And then, if that wasn't enough, you were also the CEO of the International Herald Tribune. Who are you? How do you live so many lives? <laughs> I'm, I'm a lucky SOB that sometimes was at the right place, the right time. Oh, my goodness gracious. I always thought that because I made the decision not to go to grad school and get a PhD, that someday I would lose a job I wanted. But I somehow always seemed to wriggle through. So I've been very lucky. So but tell I want me to tell about you, No, please go ahead. No, I want to tell you what I'm doing now. I had my 80th birthday in December. God bless you. I am what is known as an old fart. No, it's not. Very important to know where you are in your life. And you and I, Michael, we live in a culture that celebrates youth or the illusion of youth. Indeed. Wants to make us think we're younger than we are and we're in the prime of life. So my metaphor for my life is one of discipline. And it's this. Life is a trip around the base paths of a baseball field. Four times 90 feet around the bases. Now, taken that way, if you put out my life against that, a trip around the bases, I'm halfway between third and home. And I'm probably closer to home than third. It's important to know where you are. So I'm using my last years, which may be four, six, you know, when you're 80, you can pop dead tomorrow morning for all the hell I know. It can happen to anyone at any time, Peter. That is correct. (laughs) But I'm using those years in my work to try and help prepare the next younger generation, uh, which let's include you, you in that generation, Michael, um, to deal with some of the huge problems my generation is leaving them and didn't handle well. The mm. biggest one is climate change. I was going to ask area, you. We are leaving you guys a terrible, incomplete mess that we've known about for years and didn't do. So that's... And that's in a very existential sense how I'm going to spend how I'm spending the last few years of my life professionally. So let's chat about that. I know you're very passionate about this subject, and I want to talk to you about this subject. It was one of the questions that I had for you. So tell me about what it is that you're working on because I think it's fantastic. And if you share with the listeners, please, a little bit about that and what your focus is, what you want to do. You've identified the problem. And you want to put a spotlight on it. So tell me what the focus is at the moment. Well, because of my foundation and experience and, and public life generally, as you've, you've outlined, um, there are some foundations and NGOs who want to hire me as an advisor to help them with their strategy in the climate area. Mm-hmm. Because slowly, a lot of American foundations are getting the point cheaper. So we've, got, we've got to do something. So I have lots of faults, Michael, um, but one of the things I'm good at is strategy. And yes. so that's what I help them. How, what can we do? 
how can we give away our money? Who should we give it to to make a difference in the climate area, to do some of the things? So I'll give you a couple of examples of things that need to be done. Um, one of the foundations I advise is a very, the, the philanthropic activity is a very large European family who is happier remaining anonymous, but uh, uh, some of your listeners may figure out who I'm talking about. And they oriented one of their existing foundations into the climate change field, and I helped them with that about eight or seven years ago. And what they are doing now is very interesting. The first thing they're working on is what's called the energy transition for the poor around the world. Wow. So if you're a poor family in rural India, which has more people who don't have electric power than any other country in the world, there are now many parts of the country where you can get a solar panel for your house get it financed on a basis you can pay for. And what do you do with the solar panel? One of the things you do with it is you charge a cell phone for wow. your young high schooler and they go to school wow. that way with the cell phone or the uh, working people in the family use it to get the information of the crop they're growing. What's the latest market price? Who, who will bid on the cell phone? For the so you get this connection of clean energy and productive economic behavior. So this is called the energy transition for the poor because we cannot meet the energy needs of the poor by building coal plants, which China, for example, is still using in several. We, we've got to get out of the coal business. Uh, I can give you other examples, but that's just one I wanted I to that. make concrete. And it's, it's, it's interesting, and uh, it illustrates one of the key things we have to do. What we're really talking about here is refashioning. I don't want to use a dreamy word like reinventory. We are refashioning and orienting the basics of the global economy. So yes. We're not built around fossil fuel. And leveling the playing field of yeah. opportunity. Yes, sir. Because if it's not done in a way that provides opportunity for people, it will not work and it will not be fair. Wow. I have a, uh, a question that I would love the answer to. What's the greatest lesson you've ever learned? I guess well, I, I have several coming to mind, but a very central one. In many, in many of these jobs, I had to do things that no one had quite done before. Um, or it was a large and sudden challenge that didn't fit in neat categories, like the fiscal crisis in New York City in the, in the 70s. Um, and one of the things I learned early in my career was you got to take the time to really make sure you understand the problem. No, yes. this is not a Western movie where you strap on your revolver and go out as soon as, as, soon as the alarm goes off. And, you know, you got to really understand the problem. But then you build a path, you build a strategy, and you don't give up. And if mm. you can't get around the barn by going through the mud, you come back and you get around the barn by climbing the hill on the other side of the mud. So perseverance finding several ways to skin a cat because by definition in these areas, you're in uncharted territory and there are not a lot of people who can, uh, who can advise you really usefully because you're facing a new kind of problem. So that's, that's, that's one very, very important lesson. 
I love that lesson. That's that's a great one. It's just perseverance, isn't it? Um, I have a couple of more questions for you. You know, this is this is a podcast on um, on global real estate, and you certainly had a vision on housing. What's your what do you, in your opinion, think is the greatest housing challenge we're facing now? Um, the greatest, I'm going to broaden it slightly, housing sure, and do. build space. Yeah. We go beyond housing to office space, uh, public space. The greatest challenge we face is how to decarbonize both the operation and construction of built space because it is the single largest sector of carbon emissions on this planet in which we've made almost no progress. Mm. And there are ways to do that. And that's another area where I'm advising a couple of foundations and NGOs on, uh, on how to move. But this is one where state and local governments ought to be taking the lead because housing and building stock is largely regulated and controlled not by the federal government, but by state and local. Correct. Municipalities. So, yeah, exactly. So some of these local governments could get, and it is a potential source of fairly high class jobs for a while. Now, you know, I love that. it's not like working for Amazon. You can, you can get well paid in the construction industry. Absolutely. You can. And so are you an avid reader? Yes, I am. I guess I'm a selective leader, but yes, uh, yes, I read a lot there. That's what you're so Tell me what is one book that you've read more than once and why? Oh boy. I've read very <laughs> few books more than once. Because uh, I keep wanting to find something else and and go further. Um, there's I love some that answer though. There's some authors I've read a lot because I like the way they think I've Tell read. Tell me that. I've read Leo Tolstoy a lot. Um, I've read. Uh, I, I'll tell you a book I really love that I that I read in the past year. It's called Lincoln on the Verge. It's by a guy named Ted Widmer, and it is it tells the story of Abraham Lincoln. That wonderful man who came and took office when the country was as divided as we are today. Absolutely so. And it tells his history and his biography and some of the things he did and some of the things he had to improvise because no, this had never happened before. And it's powerful and realistic. And it's a wonderful lesson for our times. Lincoln on the verge. And it's got some American history that very few of us learned in our history classes. And, you know, I'm a big Lincoln fan. So I've read a lot of that. I've read that book as well. And oh. there was a um, an idea that goes right back to what you were just saying as one of your greatest lessons of perseverance. Um, you know, it's uh, here's one of our greatest presidents that lost most of his elections. That's right. That's right. An extraordinary. And extraordinary. And who learned on the job as he went along. Indeed. Really, really. Indeed. And so I have one final question for you, Peter. You have been so delightful. I have one final question. In your book of life, what is this chapter called? This chapter is an attempt to find an honorable and constructive wind down of one of the luckiest lives a human being on this planet could have. Wow. Peter, you are an extraordinary gentleman. It has been such an amazing honor to get to know you, to get to have this conversation. 
And I thank you for your amazing insight and candor and just, you're such an affable human being. I just want to go and have a glass of wine with you and your wonderful wife. I'm going to invite you over to my house. No, we're going to invite you to dinner. I would be Is there a Mrs. Valdez? There isn't. Okay. But you'll have have me. We'll have you. But the reason this was a fun conversation was you helped make it fun for me. So thank you for that. Thank you, sir. Okay. And thank you for all of you for listening. This has been the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Thank you so much. 